Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is the easiest way to film your hunts. Whether it's the easy-to-use and budget-friendly Solo or the 4K 5.0, Tacticam has something for everyone. So you can check them out at Tacticam.com. We are just getting our Tacticam Wides in finally. Um, They're just starting to get back into stock, so watch out for that. We're waiting on our Tacticam Reveal uh, cell cams, uh, put a couple cameras out, um, but I haven't got a chance to check out the Tacticam ones yet uh, because we haven't received them. So um, looking forward to trying those out and comparing them to what we're using right now. Definitely check those out. All the reviews are, are good. Um, but uh, like I said, we're looking to check them out for ourselves. Um, this week's episode is um, kind of mind-bending. So we're talking with Bill Thompson with Spartan Forge. And um, Bill is a very intelligent guy. And, you know, this one starts off, he uses a lot of big words. And uh, maybe he's a little tense. And I uh, try to loosen him up a little bit and uh, get into the nuts and bolts of it. But basically everything that's going on on your phone where Google is tracking you, Apple is tracking you, Facebook is tracking you, um, all of those things. He's using that same type of technology and applying it to patterning deer and um, to deer hunting. And uh, he's using all of uh, the resources that are available to him. So um, all the social media data, uh, he's got a lot of different biologists at different universities using uh, collared deer studies uh, to track these deer, putting it into a computer and algorithm uh, to predict where they're at. And they're at such a point with that right now where they're taking brand new data that these uh, biologists are giving them and plugging them in, I guess, are pitting it against where their uh, program, their machine, this machine learning um, will predict that these deer are and um, they're getting actually pretty good at it and it's getting ready to uh, launch in September Um, so uh, stick with this one it's super interesting Um, it's a little bit nerdy but uh, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it it's a pretty awesome uh, podcast once you allow yourself to uh, wrap your head around the process so uh, real quick, just got to give a shout out to our Patreons. Uh, Patreon is a crowdfunding for uh, creators. And what that does is that allows us to, um, you know, host this podcast. It costs money to uh, just even have it stored out there uh, for you guys to listen to. It allows us to go on hunts. It allows us to try new gear. It allows us to do lots of different things. And uh, basically, instead of doing that, we take that money and we roll it right back into the Patreon. So we are giving away one of those Tacticam solos. We are um, giving away a, a base map uh, package um, where it's uh, base map swag as well as a base map pro. And if you're not checking that out, I mean, base map gives away a ton of free stuff and uh, by doing their gear drops. And you can do that just with their free app if you go to basemap.com. And if you decide that you want to use that, you can use code Chronicles uh, and get 20% off. So for less than the cost of uh, one state um, on some of the other uh, mapping apps, um, you know, for for $24, you can have base map for the entire country for the year. And uh, the added layers and the features that uh, base map offers is really awesome. Uh, But we're doing that. We're giving away a set of B-sticks. 
and uh, we're going to be adding more stuff as the the quarter goes on but we give that away uh every quarter and then we do a monthly giveaway for the vitals live and i'm going to do that um coming up here in the next uh few days because um frankly on the vitals live there's a bunch of uh, really awesome guests johnny eberhardt garrett prawl dan infault uh next week we start with uh troy fowler the ranch ferry um and you can check that out at the vitalslive.com and we're giving away a membership for that as well so certainly go check that out but um you know and you can find out any of that information at patreon.com forward slash bowhunter chronicles podcast um or our website bowhunter chronicles podcast.com but if that's not for you no big deal uh we appreciate every single person that listens just tell somebody else about the podcast we definitely appreciate that and uh you know if you really like what we're doing uh leave us a review uh you know click that five star button and, uh, you know, if you really like what we're doing, give us some feedback. So when people are going through and they're looking at different podcasts, um, you can tell them why you like this podcast. Um, but it, either way, uh, we appreciate everybody that's listening. I know you're going to enjoy this one. You just got to kind of stick with it. And it's, I mean, it, you, you got to wrap your head around it, but it's definitely a fun one. And, uh, you can check out, uh, Spartan Forge, um, on their YouTube, we did one of the vitals live with, uh, with Bill on that. And it shows, uh, kind of the user functionality on that, on the sport and, uh, Spartan forge, uh, YouTube page. Uh, but I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Here you go. Hey everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the bow hunter Chronicles podcast. Uh, we're doing this one zoom. Uh, John is on vacation and, uh, He's got no service, so um, I had the opportunity to sit down here. I got everything set up here in the in the basement, still waiting on uh, internet out to the studio. So I'm just going to do it here, and uh, I've got uh, Bill Thompson with Spartan Forge uh, on on the phone on the on the chat here today, and um, he's got a, a product that he's been developing for quite some time that uh, is going to take a little bit of explaining. Um, I was, we were just talking here and, you know, I looked at it. I, I did one of these with him, um, on the vitals live uh, a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago now. And uh, to be honest with you, when it was brought up and I was trying to do some research on it, I was like, I, I can't wrap my head around it. And, um, and then after talking to Bill, um, I mean, I've just been blowing up my friends saying like, you can't even imagine, like, it's like literally like mind blown, like crazy, um, interesting, uh, how it's going to come to fruition. And it's whether the, um, the hardcores like it or not, it's something that's coming, whether it's Bill or, uh, Bill Gates, I guess. So, um, <laughs> uh, First of all, uh, how you doing tonight, uh, Bill? And can we get a little uh, introduction from you? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Bill Thompson. Uh, I'm an active duty military guy. Uh, I've been in for about 20 years. And the majority of my career has been spent uh, doing intelligence work, trying to uh, locate bad guys um, for in the Army, you know, kinetic forces, basically guys who are going to go out and do the operation. And uh the army over the past maybe about 15 years has been trying to come up with new and interesting ways to do this that makes sense. And kind of one of the things that we have as a military right now 
or as a government and you know everybody has access to tons of data so you have tons of different data data points and they are you know there's a lot of it uh it's tough for a person or even a group of people to look at this data and draw any meaningful conclusions you know humans by our nature are pattern recognition uh agents you know our, our everything we do is pattern recognition we look at something visually or we hear something or we smell something and we associate that with a pattern of behavior and then we apply a pattern of behavior towards it so that's the essence of as well with machine learning it's uh taking droves and droves of data and applying machine learning which is just pattern recognition and the reason machine learning or it's called artificial intelligence is because it's assembling neurons and there's you know you can think of it simply as like three decisions that get processed through a neur through a neuron and that neuron uh, is mimicking the way that we uh, use the human how the human brain works and uh, so in the military, I, I started doing this work probably I'm at, 10 years ago or so, or so. We were trying to take all of this data and, and draw meaningful conclusions about it and then use these things as indicators for the warfighter and saying, you know, we have a good idea that bad guy A or bad guy B is over here. And, and here's how we did it. Here's how we went through that process. So as I was doing this work, you know, uh, whether it was in Afghanistan or in Iraq, and or a lot of people didn't even know we were at war for years in the southern Philippines. Uh, since about, I'd say about 2010, we were at war in the southern Philippines. So in all three of those locations, uh, the question had to be answered, where are the bad guys at now? And then where are they gonna be, or where could they be that it would be advantageous for us to do an interdiction and then you know get hands on them or put them out of commission? So that's pretty much, you know, my military career in a nutshell or what I've been doing. And I've done it for, you know, regular forces, special forces, special missions units, special operations guys, you know, every different type of military unit that's, that's getting after these bad guys I've done it for. And as I was doing this, you know, I grew up as a hunter in North Dakota. It was mostly rifle hunting for me, at least when I was younger. I didn't take it seriously. It was just kind of like an annual thing that we did. And then um, as I was older, a buddy of mine got me into bow hunting. And uh, during a lot of my army career, I didn't do a lot of bow hunting because I was always gone, deployed somewhere doing something, or I didn't have time to do the scouting or, or you know, most of the time I was gone. But when I was downrange, I realized a lot of the ways that we're ingesting data and doing this pattern analysis, like I talked about before, um, translated directly to whitetail hunting and all of that data was already out there so whether that's you know tagging data um social media data that people are putting online uh wildlife studies that are being published academic studies that are being published and uh specifically as of late for us last about four years we've been doing this it's been gps data and social media data and academic studies and uh we've been putting that all together and trying to answer these same types of questions for hunters that I've been answering for the military for many years. And that is, where is my target now? What are the tendencies of my target? How do I exploit the tendencies of my target to create some kind of, to, to increase the odds for me in some way, shape or form? So 
that's that, that's the two those those are the efforts of my life and that's kind of how they line up so uh yeah that's i guess that's the history that's the long and the short of it so as a company what we've been doing for the past you know seriously for the past four years is gathering as much of this data as we can and making as much sense of it as possible and making sure that it's as uh as it it's based in truth as much as possible and then making those predictions for the hunter and uh we've gotten our you know our product to a point now where it performs quite well and uh we're ready to put it on the market here on 1 September okay so um let's back up a little bit um sure, sure. through through all of that and um i mean i you know they'll I'll be beaten up here if I don't say, you know, thank you for your service and, and all of that, you know, thanks um, for your patriotism. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for your service as well. Right. Yeah. You know, I just, I was young and said, you know what, I can do a lot of things and I won't, I won't see how much I can challenge myself. And it turns out I'm pretty yeah. good at drinking beer and being an asshole. So the Marines was perfect. <laughs> Okay, right up my alley. Yeah, for me it was. I was seventeen, and I thought to myself, "I'm not a farmer, and I'm not a banker, and I'm not a waiter. So how the hell do I get out of here?" And the military came calling, and all the girls liked that guy in his uniform, and I thought I, I could do that. Yep, yep. You know, so same thing. Yeah, hundred percent. I think there's a lot of people that uh, that are like that. So you said um, that you grew up hunting in in North Dakota as a, uh, kind of as an aside. Um, I guess as you progressed and with your, um, you know, military training and, and everything like that, how did your hunting style like start and where did it, where did it evolve to? Yeah. So it kind of started with, especially cause when I first started hunting, I was hunting at my mother, bow hunting. I was hunting at my mother's property and out in North Dakota, there's not a lot of pressure, uh, or at least there wasn't when I started. So for me, it was kind of like, all right, I know there's these things called scrapes. There's going to be a scrape line along this field. Let me get down low. Let me get, wait for these scrapes to show up. I'll get downwind of them. And then hopefully I'll see something, you know, and I, you know, would take out some pretty decent, like, you know, three and a half year old deer and some does and get the job done or, you know, wait, leave some standing corn in the middle of a field. And uh, that was kind of how my hunting progressed. And then um, I, after I initially started bow hunting, seriously i started deploying a lot and then it came to a point where i could only i only had access to public land and out in uh on the east coast is where i was mostly and in maryland it's very difficult to get on the public or on the on the private land uh it's very locked down there and i think they have one of the highest bow hunters per square miles so I started initially just, you know, walking into the middle of the woods and throwing a stand on the side of a tree and seeing nothing, you know, and just like, why am I not seeing anything? Like, I know there's food here. There's an agricultural field. You know, I used to hunt this agricultural area near Beltsville, Maryland, where there was, you know, always agriculture in the fields and it was public land that you could get on. And I'd sit in the woods, you know, on a, on a stand, on a setup that would work great in North Dakota, you know, 30, 30, 30 yards inside of a, of a, agricultural field and just wait for the deer to come by but it was so heavily hunted that the deer weren't getting on those fields until 10 30 p.m 11 p.m you know everyone had been on the field since 6 30 and then the deer are just starting to come in and i was getting frustrated because 
I just couldn't figure it out. Like, what, what is, what, what am I doing wrong? And that's kind of when I started doing a lot of reading. And one of the authors that I read was Charlie Alzheimer. And, uh, you know, they say in life, don't meet your heroes. But I got to meet Charlie and hang out with him and go hunting with him. And he was a great guy. You know, he died a couple of years ago, but he was a prolific whitetail hunter and a, uh, you know, a layman scientist. And uh, while I was reading his books and I started to kind of figure out, you know, I need to zero in and get closer to these bucks towards their beds. But I wasn't doing anything as aggressive as maybe I'm doing now, especially on public land. I was still, you know, hunting transition and laying off the bedding and I didn't want to spook them out of their bedding. And then, you know, I started seeing more deer in Maryland. And then I thought, you know, this still isn't getting the job done. And then it progressed for me to public land. And I've got to be willing to put more boots on the ground than most people are willing to do. So I found the biggest piece of public land I could in Maryland at the time, which was Green Ridge State Forest. And I just scouted all of the time. Like, I, I think I spent two or three summers of just like 30 or 35 trips. And then I trained my dog to become a shed hunter. And I would take him up there with me. And he was a really good shed hunter. And I would map every, I would map everything out and mark everything and find. And then at that point, you know, I was more of like a choke point hunter. And uh, I would find, you know, the, as much of the most sign I could and then get on a choke point and then wait for peak rut, which in Maryland is kind of right before the gun season starts. And uh, would start, started to, you know, kill some pretty good public land deer, like 120, 140 inch deer. And then, uh, and then after, you know, a few, after that, then I started getting on, um, I had read a book called Oh, it's a guy, a guy named Herndon, I think was his name. Brad Herndon, was, Mapping Trophy Whitetails. That's what it was. And it was Mapping Bucks. And uh, that one kind of opened my eyes up even more. And that's while I was doing the stuff downrange in the military. And at that time is when I started seeing the similarities. I was like, okay, they're constrained. You know, I'd said it earlier was identify the tendencies and then exploit them. And one of the tendencies that became evident to me was they were constrained by movement and they're constrained by wind. They want to bed, especially bucks, with wind at their, at their advantage. So they could see in front of them and have their wind to their back. So at, even though that's their strength, you can still try to tilt that in your favor and use it against them to make it their weakness. And that's when I, you know, we were doing similar things in Afghanistan. You could think like, or in Iraq as well. There was one road between this area where we knew they were and this area where they had to go if they wanted to conduct operations. So we either fly drones in the air or we do uh, interdictions on the routes uh, or we, you know, ruin the route, you know, and it's the same thing hunters were doing. So that's when it kind of made sense to me was uh, use whatever their advantage is and, and try to make it their disadvantage as much as possible. So I started getting closer and closer into the bedding areas and then I found uh, online, you know, other hunters who were doing this like very aggressive style of hunting. And for me, that's, you know, when I started killing the, my biggest deer was when I uh, really started hunting them in their beds, like, you know, maybe 60 to 90 yards off their beds and uh, got lucky a couple of times and killed what I thought, you know, was a pretty big deer in Maryland and, uh, uh, and, uh, and in North Dakota you know, going home to North Dakota on hunting public land. So that's kind of a really long explanation to say for me, it was 
try, fail, try, fail, try, fail, but always be willing to first have a high threshold for failure and realize, especially when you're hunting public land where it's heavily pressured, that you should just be happy when you see a deer. Uh, um, and then secondarily after that, realizing, okay, now if I'm going to go after, if I'm going to do these calculations and realize that this is the prime piece of bedding on this property, and knowing that a buck might have upwards of 20 prime bedding locations on a property and that no other deer are going to be in there, get used to the fact that I might be seeing one deer a month, you know, one buck. If I'm hunting a buck location where I'm seeing bedding and uh, I'm in the hill country of Maryland, which is kind of like northwestern Maryland, really get really get used to the fact that I might sit 20 times until I see that one buck that I know is out there because I've been seeing chest high rubs around there, but this guy's really dynamic with his area. And, and that was a story for a, a pretty good uh, public land buck I killed in 2017. And I just kept hunting, hunting bedding areas and kept hunting, hunting bedding areas and uh, it, it paid off for me, but it was, it was getting, it was getting used to the fact that if I wanted to just see deer, I could do that by hunting pinch points. But if I wanted to kill big deer, I needed to set level set my expectations and accept failure, you know, as, as being the norm, as being the happenstance. And uh, I wish it had gone quicker for me. <laughs> Unfortunately, everything I just described to you took probably 12 years or so. But, um, you know, uh, understanding all of that and understanding those constraints and then also understanding that academics are tagging bucks with GPS collars and they're tagging does with GPS collars. And that social media and everyone wants to report the bucks that they're killing online and that insurance agencies know exactly when peak car collision um, uh, is happening state by state and county by county and understanding that uh, uh, QDMA and other whitetail agencies are publishing these studies year after year saying, here's peak conception. Here's the biggest deer that have been killed in the state. Here is what the um, hunter to deer ratios are for taking out taking all of that data and drawing those same patterns, it just, it just, for me, it clicks and it makes obvious sense, especially when you're dealing with like the, the car collision data and the GPS data, like those numbers can't be faked. Like the, the tendencies that you get from that have to be the tendencies because you have such a prolific amount of information that uh, there's no way for an outlier to get a vote, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about that, and I mean, that sounds like the normal progression as far as that like 12 year, I mean, you know, it, it, I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts and it's time in the woods, you know, you have to, um, you, unless you have like a great mentor and even, I mean, it could be argued that, you know, I had a great mentor, but you have to listen to them. Right. So if yeah. you, if you're not, if you're not paying attention or you're not doing that and you know, you talk about the car deer collisions, like my father-in-law, he used to be a, a, a garbage man. Right. I mean, we got a yep. segment on here, tales from the garbage man about all the bad things that he's eaten and the things that he's done bad and all <laughs> these things that you find in the garbage. But it was almost cheating because he would be driving back and forth on, you know, the highway back and forth from the dump to these commercial areas. And when he started to see more bucks laying dead on the side of the road, then that was when we needed to be in the woods. 
you know, that was yep. when that, that activity was picking up. Um, so that's, that's interesting. So what you, you said like 2017 is when it kind of all like came together or whatever, but you said you've been working on this for, for many years. Uh, how did you, um, I guess, have you been implementing that, uh, the, the technology and the things that you've been using, uh, throughout this whole process, um, so, since, since you started to put those patterns together, yeah. So I start I, the first time I I started implementing technology was about 2013, and what I did was I wired up some properties that I hunted with uh, the easiest way to explain it is like a, a vibration sensor, or it's called an accelerometer, and uh, I had used some nut. There's this great website for engineers called Adafruit where you can uh, order like Arduinos and custom made PCBs. And basically I, I, I wired up my own 900 megahertz wireless deer camera area on these properties I was hunting, um, one in North Dakota and one in Maryland. And I knew the areas where deer were always scraping and rubbing on trees. I knew which trees they like to rub on because of the scent that, or, or their ability to leave scent deposits behind on the trees. And the prop, there was always scraping in the same areas, especially there's always like the same area year after year on this one farm where there was always these big primary scrapes. So what I did was I took these accelerometers and put them all because they're cheaper than cameras were. And I put them all over the property and then I put weather vanes all over the property. And all I was trying to do was first determine if there was an actual pattern in the way that they move, because it wasn't evident to me at that time that there was actually a pattern and that they weren't all individuals because deer can be very individualistic. And at that time I thought, you know, maybe all of these lunar forecasts and rising pressure, lowering pressure, 10%, you know, cloud cover guys were full of malarkey and I wanted to see it for myself. So I just put these accelerometers everywhere and I knew when there were, when deer were going on trails, I would get sent, I would, I would get, um, uh, it would report back. I knew when they were scraping and rubbing on trees and I could look at all of the peaks in the data. And then what I was doing was just in an Excel spreadsheet. This was before we got into machine learning. I was just marking it all down. And then I'd look at the bell curves that it, that it produced and the weather that was happening at those times. And that was, and when I started doing that, I got very accurate with knowing, okay, this buck is always scraping on this field when it's this wind between this temperature. And it wasn't because he, you know, made a, a conscious decision to do that. It was because he could scent check these scrapes and knew if they needed freshening based on the wind. So for him, it was pre a pragmatic decision, or I shouldn't even say pragmatic, instinctual decision, but he would only hit these, the scrape line uh, when this wind was coming. So I knew, okay, if I want to kill this buck, which I did, he was a big four by four. I need to be on this field at this time because I've seen him there so many times. And that was when I started getting the patterns out of data. And then the, my next decision became, okay, how can I get so much data that there's no way that I, I won't be able to understand how the general deer moves. Right. So and, and stop me if I'm not making sense or if I'm, or if I'm uh, going too far afield, but basically, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, every deer, just like every human kind of comes with wiring, right? 
the, by the way that we thermal regulate uh, the times of the year for 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 deer when they're moving, when they're mating, crispuscular movement, how cervids move, how mammals move. There's bell curves there when you can observe millions and millions of movements. So at that point, I started reaching out to, and this would have been 2014 into 2015, I just started blast emailing every researcher I could and saying, hey, here's what I'm doing on my farms here with these accelerometers. And I'm seeing some pretty meaningful trends with this data. Are you guys able to share your GPS data with me so that I might be able to extrapolate even more meaningful pattern from this information? So now instead of just looking at the, you know, my 30 some deer on those two farms, now I was able to look at the patterns of 70 deer over you know four years and then now what are the general patterns of those deer okay now I, I so i get that i so i get a proliferation of data for the southeast it's like okay i have a pretty good idea of how the southeastern deer moves it's like all right i need to move northeast so i might go up north to another researcher and say look i've got this good model that i've trained using machine learning both for the for the tagging of the data because there's millions of data points and then for the um, prediction of that data. And if you give me your data from up here, from the Northeast, I can do two things for you. I can tell you what the patterns are that we're finding up here. And I can also tell you how they might differ from the South. And then if you have questions relating to that, uh, we can, uh, you know, me and my guys can look at that and, and tell you, here's how they differ. And these are the things they differ on. And, you know, I was able to find some good researchers who, some researchers are horrible about sharing data, and I understand why, but some of them just really hold on to it, and, and you have a hard time understanding why. And then some researchers are more than willing to share. And uh, we were able to get, you know, with the exception of the Northeast, we really have good data from all over the U.S. We really have a very good understanding of how the general deer moves. And I guess a point of contact for your listeners might be, as we ingest new GPS data, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll break this down for you just to make sure this hits home is that so a, a, a deer has a GPS collar on and that it might be taking it somewhere every 30 minutes, somewhere every five minutes, and then somewhere every hour. It, you, you get a hit on the GPS tag and it says, you know, here is exactly where this deer is in the field. And this GPS collar stays on this deer for, you know, at least usually a year. Some of them were as long as seven years. And so we get that and we use it to train our neural network. And what I mean by training our neural network is we are saying, here's how deer have moved in the past as differences in topography, vegetation, and weather present themselves. Here's how they generally, generally react to that. Okay, so we get a ton of that data. And then we train a model and the model says, okay, I think I have a good understanding of how deer will negotiate property and when they will be most active. In other words, uh, you know, we like to say uh, an easy way of saying is when are they going to be risking themselves more to feed or mate? In other words, walking during daylight hours when they're huntable. So the machine makes a prediction based on that. And then we train it and then we have a model that can do prediction. And then we might reach out to someone else and say, hey, we've got this model that predicts quite well right now. We would like to use your data that we've never seen before and and get the dates that you have this data for, look those historical dates up, and then pose that question to the network. 
and say, how do you think these deer that were tagged for this time period, uh, when do you think they're moving the most, moving the least, and then where do you think they were moving, and where do you think they weren't moving, okay? And then we ask the machine that question. The machine makes a prediction, and then we compare that. We look at the delta with the actual truth data, which is how they moved. And then if there's a big disparity, which we're at the point now where we're not getting them, but we were getting big disparities early on because deer move for a variety of reasons, especially from the north to the south for different reasons. If there was a disparity, then we would train that data. We would include that in the calculus that the machine was learning to make the prediction. Uh, and then what we ended up doing is regionalizing it. So we would, as we have a ton of southeastern data, we would bias that data and give it more of a vote than we would northern data. And then if we're making a prediction up north, then we would bias the data to the north. Uh, but there's a lot of overlap. And right now, you know, we're in the realm of about 65 to 70% of the time, which I think is getting towards the top, but I'm not sure how far up it can go. But 65 to 70% of the time, we're dead on accurate to, uh, as we ingest new data, we're 65 to 70% accurate on were the deer moving a lot or a little these days, and where were they moving? And, and the machine predicts that well. So you could think of it as an automated, it sounds kind of stupid to say, but it's the truth. You can think of it as an automated reasoning system for a deer, if that makes sense. So um, a couple things, like uh, from the beginning of that, it makes me think like, um, like for people that cheat on tests, right? You know, yeah. you, you might spend so much time like writing out, copying down all the answers. And then by the time you get to the test, you're like, I already know the answers. That kind of sounds yeah. like what you were saying by figuring all of this out. And then it's also some like mad t scientist type shit about building like <laughs> all these motion sensors all over your property. I mean, yeah. th that's crazy. Like when you were telling like uh, old Joe Bob down the the road in North Dakota, what was going on on your farm? What were the people saying or the people in Maryland when you were telling like regular hunters, like what the hell you were doing or did you yeah, keep so that I pretty close to the vest? No <laughs> yeah, I, was gonna say. I actually did not tell a person because I thought, Hey, this is might not work and be dumb. And I might be risking my neck as like an engineer in the military. Like you're an idiot. <laughs> what are you trying to do? But then secondly, I thought if this works, I might have something here. So I actually told no one except for the guys that I went and ended up going to business with who are both electrical engineers and data scientists, what I was doing. And it was tough because I, when we really started to get accuracy from the models, like keeping your lips sealed was so difficult because I felt like we were sitting on something that was going to go somewhere. So we, I actually told no one uh, besides like my, my mother and, uh, you know, at the time, my kids. I might say, you know, this is what I'm doing, or this is why we're going to go hang this crazy looking thing from this tree over here. Uh, I kind of told no one. And, and so I should also go back to the point you were saying about the, an the test answers for the tests. That's an interesting. Um, so in machine learning and in neural networks, there's a concept called overfitting. And basically what overfitting means is, say I'm trying to train a neural network to recognize a cat, right? I could train it on images of cats and then I could, and then when I want to test it, I could pluck one of those pictures from the training data 
and then ask the machine, what is this? And of course, because I've already told it that it's a cat, it's going to recognize, oh, this is a cat. And, and that's a sim very simplistic way of describing a concept that's called overfitting. But one way to get around that or to make sure that you are not training your model to be too specific is you should test it with photos that it's never seen. So you show it a cat from every which angle and you show it thousands of different you know, subspecies of cat. And then when you want to test it, you go out and you take a brand new picture of a cat. And then, you know, a good model will recognize, OK, this is a cat. But then a great model will say this is the same cat as another picture, if that makes sense. Oh, so yeah. yeah, yeah. You... That, go ahead. Yeah, that wasn't what I was saying. I remember you, uh, you know, the last time we spoke, we, you, you talked a little bit about that. What I was talking about is you had 12 years of experience and kind of figured out how to kill these deer. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then so you already knew like the 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 answers there like and so you are you were just trying to cut down the learning curve for the next guy or something cuz it sounds yes. like you you did all the work to to figure out you went through all the painstaking stuff to figure out how to start killing these deer and then yes. said well damn it i'm going <laughs> to go mad scientist and figure this out <laughs> yeah like i said to myself I'm I don't know where I'm going to get this much data. Maybe I just need to start producing it on my own. And I flirted in the very beginning with the idea of trying to sell these accelerometers. Um, so people could just, you know, hack their property with these intelligence producing sensors. And, and it just trying to compete a, in the camera market or the sensor market, I guess this would be, is so cutthroat. And just the money is not there because these guys, these other camera companies, you know, are designing their cameras and they're sending them off to China and they're making them and then they sell them at like three to five percent over. And it's just, you know, how cheap can we make this camera? And being in the trade space that I was in the military, it didn't really appeal to me. And I thought there's got to be a better way to train the network to do this prediction. And that's kind of when it hit me that, you know, there's people out there doing GPS studies for a million different reasons. It doesn't matter what the reason for their study was. I can use their data, um, and it just it just worked. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess that's the long and the short of that. Um, yeah, yeah, it, 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 super interesting because like I, that's what I was thinking. And, and but I think the question that's going to be posed um, most, or where it doesn't it's going to take to click. And so like today I went, I looked at, um, I've got this all, you know, we hunting in, in Michigan, you know, I'm in Michigan. So there's all these, um, spots where there's hunters and hunters and hunters. And I did the same thing that you did. I, I found the biggest piece of property that I've never been on before. And I started hunting it two years ago. Um, just for the simple fact that it was huge, I can get away from guys and there's got to be good deer on there. So I'm trying to figure that out. I went on a three and a half mile loop today uh, from spots that I found on base map in areas that I've never been looking at things that I uh, from from the aerials, from looking at deer trails, from knowing the terrain uh, in the in and around the area. I can look at the map and kind of think of what it's going to be. And it turns out that I was actually quite wrong. Um, some things that I thought were swamp and that were listed as swamp, there was no water. 
and it was just these big grass fields, which was really interesting to me when I got out there. Um, but how does, you know, what you're doing say, I mean, how can you, you say, uh, on that piece of property, this is where you need to be, or, I mean, it sounds like more of like a, when you need to be, uh, from, <laughs> yeah. from our discussions before, but as to the where, and then what do you say to guys that say like, you know, this is cheating or this is, um, y- you know, uh, you should have to figure it out the same way that I did, or is it not to the nine digit grid type? Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so what we are releasing on one September answers the when, and what I call, we call it a common operating picture. When you type in a zip code or you type in the area that you have to get, it basically gives you a representation of the land on a map. It um, which it doesn't have the functionality right now that you would get from like base map, but it's got um, it's got the predominant wind and like a wind rose for the area, and it's got the highs and lows, the averages for a defined period of time. And right now you can be like fourteen days, a month, uh, the last year or the last um, thirty. I think we're up to thirty years of data. So the first thing we're fielding is just going to answer the question of when that's what's coming out the door on first September. In other words, for the zip code that you typed in, these are the days in the next 10 days when you should either be scouting in the field or you should be hunting. So that's the first thing that is coming up. The second thing, which we will probably be beta testing uh, towards the end of the year is going to say, now this is where you should be in the field. And it answers that question by understanding where deer and pressured and unpressured environments have chose have chosen their bedding areas based on things like topography, wind, vegetation, and transition. So when you get a machine that's learning, you know, for instance, we can separate our data out. So we're only looking at three and a half year old and plus bucks, right? And these, most of these areas are areas that are hunting that we're getting GPS data from. So on all of these properties, when these weather conditions were, pro- were present and these topographic features were present, this is how a buck chose to safely bet on this area. So if, if it was a, you know, a, a, a predominantly northern wind and he had a southern facing ridge, he would bed, you know, a third to a quarter, sometimes halfway down that ridge so that the wind's flowing over his back and that he can see out in front of him. And he especially liked doing it in this area where it was transitioned between cedars and, and uh, oak trees. So, and you can see that transition on the map. So you get enough bucks that bed like that. And then the machine says, Oh, every time you have transition on the leeward side of a ridge of a mountain in an area like this, you're going to see bucks bedding there. So the machine says, okay, under these circumstances, I would bed here. So that's kind of how it does the wear. And it's very weather and temperature dependent. Uh, weather changes how beds, bu- uh, how bucks bed in areas, as we all know. And I would say that there are guys out there who get it about 80% right. I think there are other nuances with betting that we don't quite, maybe people talk about them, but I don't think they talk about them as prolifically as they should. And that happens with really the overlooked spots. And the areas where just people think deer won't be, 
Uh, one of the ones I'm always reminded of that I talk with guys whenever they, you know, ask me about this is it's a hunting area <clears throat> where guys have to park in a parking lot and there's a massive culvert, like one of those eight foot, like tall culverts. And they all walk on a path that goes over the culvert into the field to hunt. And, you know, we knew where the hunters were going in this public land area. So when you plot it out, you could see some of these guys are going back a long ways, two and a half, three miles. Well, there was a four and a half year old 140 class buck that was bedding right next to that culvert in like six foot tall. I think from the map, it looked like cattails. I've never been actually on the ground or some kind of long grass. It was kind of difficult to tell, but he would bed in that area where it transitioned. He was on the downwind side of this really thick area where it transitioned into like sapling, what looked like sapling pine trees and so what's funny about this is guys had pictures of this deer on that property and they you know got the go ahead to harvest this deer and they're walking in two and a half or three miles not knowing that every time they went to hunt that property they were within about 75 to 100 feet of him and they would walk past him and there's more than just one of those types of stories so and the machine with that and other intel other things that we're teaching it is going to try to show users more than just those leeward transition sides of ridges. It's going to try to show them this is places that the general hunter might ignore, um, especially when we start dealing with companies that retain mapping data and GPS points. We're going to start training a machine on here's how the general hunter hunts because there are really simple setups that a lot of people just breeze right past because they assume no one would ever hunt this setup. Like I would never go here. No, no, nobody in their right mind would hunt this. It's just a dumb place to be. And then that's where your matriarch doe is, or that's where your massive buck is. And that's where they lock down during the rut. Um, and then I guess to your second point there, sorry if I'm getting long winded um, about the ethical part, you know, people are always looking for information. And I guess the simpler way to say what we're trying to do is, we're trying to increase the, uh, the amount of bandwidth that people can use to ingest meaningful information. So a really low bandwidth way of understanding deer is by just getting in the woods and hunting them. And like for me, it might take you eight, nine, or 10 years to get really good if you're just doing it on your own without a mentor of just switching setups and trying to get out of ruts and learning things. That's a really low resolution, low bandwidth way of doing something. And then you might ask some buddies who have killed some good deer. So now you're upping your bandwidth. And I'm using that word bandwidth like you would say internet bandwidth, right? The amount of information that you're taking in. So you might update that bandwidth and you know, now you're talking to two or three guys or somebody who grew up on the property. So your bandwidth is getting even better. And then you are putting cameras out and you are sending, you know, those camera shots off and you are and you are asking someone who really knows their stuff, maybe like a, maybe your friend is friend with a pro staff hunter or something like that. And you're saying, Hey, how would you hunt this property knowing that deer are in these areas at this time? And then he gives you some suggestions or she gives you suggestions. And now you're really getting on deer and you're really, you know, you're really getting in there. And then you might go on YouTube and, and get all of this information uh, from, you know, the vitals live, like the po podcast that you host where you can talk with someone like, you know, Dan Infall or John Eberhardt who have been, you know, doing this for 50 years 
and really know what they're talking about. And then now you have the opportunity to ask them, hey, here's my property, you know, type this address and please go look at this piece of property. And they're saying, where are your stands? Here, here, and here. Okay, you should be over here. This is where the, this is where we think you should put a camera where the deer are. Now you're really increasing your bandwidth on how you do it. Or, or another person you might say is like your grandfather who's been hunting your farm for 75 years and he knows they're all in this little finger row of trees where you never go to. They're just on this little finger row of trees and every time they're cutting corn or making hay, they see them in here. And you're getting those expert opinions. So what we're doing is for the people who can't pay for the vitals live or for the people who can't hunt their grandfather's public land or private land or for the people who can't go out and ask two or three buddies or they might ha have a hunting buddy or, or maybe they're embarrassed to ask these questions because they don't want to look like don't want to not know what they're talking about. Uh, they can get their bandwidth going at a cheaper cost. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not going to be able to tell you with my app exactly where deer are going to be on the ground and exactly when they're going to be moving, but I am going to be able to give you good ideas. You know, I'm not going to give you the exact answer. You're still going to have to get out there. You're still going to have to be quiet. You're still going to have to maintain your discipline. You're still going to have to sit on stand for hours on end. It's just, I have improved your bandwidth to make considerations and to plan your hunt and then told you the best day to do it no differently than you'd be able to get from if you had the money to pay an outfitter or you had access to a Dan Infault or you had your grandfather who's been on that land for seven years. So we're automating those best practices and we're sticking them on a phone, I guess is another, I'm sorry, very long winded answer to, you know, what, what's the ethic involved here? And the ethic is we're just making sense of things for people in a way that we are using data that we know is truthful so that you can be judicious with your paid time off and your fam being away from your family or maximize your family's time in the field so your son or your daughter is seeing more deer and they want to get interested in it. And we're, and we're making it available to everybody. So really what we're doing is, is we're taking expert information and we're making it affordable. Sure. And I mean, you keep saying like, uh, you know, long winded or whatever. The beauty of podcasts is that it's a long form conversation, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, you yeah. can, you know, that that's why the rabbit holes and all this stuff. I mean, that's why people tune in is because, you know, it's not an infomercial. It's not, a, you know, sure. it, it, we're, we're getting all of this. Um, and it's funny that you say that because, you know, there's, I mean, Dan Infault has a whole bunch of stories of killing deer in the parking lot and, you know, having to circle around and things like that. You know, at our, we've got 240 acres in the UP and nobody ever kills big deer up there. It's, it's, it's just this, you know, we've got 10, 15 guys that go out on 240 acres, have a, a deer camp, you know, it's always, you know, it was always gun hunting. It was always this. And uh, since I've not been going up there for gun season, just because it gun season doesn't appeal to me. Um, but my uncle was walking down the road that you walk in, uh, that you drive in to our property. And there was, you know, for, for us, a good deer is over a hundred inches. So, you know, yeah. there's a, a 110 inch, eight point bedded in the cattails that you can see our cabin from, you know, and they're yeah. like, I can't even believe it. And he couldn't, you know, he was just so dumbfounded. His rifle wasn't even loaded and couldn't take a shot. And the deer was gone before that. But that same thing of those overlooked spots or where, you know, how many that deer didn't get to be that big or that age up there 
it probably was there every November 15th, a rifle opener, just watching us walk by blaze orange, you know, yeah. no big deal. Um, so to the, the ethical, whatever point, let's put it in a, a, another, um, uh, scenario, which maybe, um, you can kind of wrap your head around and kind of explain, but like, so to guys, um, that are in the military with, uh, you know, land navigation right so compass map you know reverse azimuths and you know trying to figure that out and then you've got gps so now we can just give people a gps or you know iron sights versus acog you know old core that whole thing the ability to do that without that so you've got somebody that's new and so, you know, the the correlation I'm going for here is like, okay, so you get this app and it just tells you this is where I need to be, whatever. Um, how is the, 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 that learning process or, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the heart of it, you know what I mean? Like the, the basis of, you know, learning these things versus just, you know, it, it helps you, but killing a deer for social media or, you know, because everybody kills a 140 on Instagram. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess one of the things, you know, there's a great quote and I'm trying to remember who said it. And I'm, it's like God, the quote was God invented man. And then Samuel, and then Samuel Colt, Colt made them all equal. Mm-hmm. I think is how the quote goes. Right. Yep. yep. It, it's kind of the same thing here is, uh, you know, everyone is a hunter and people's ability to stay invested and wanting to hunt, you know, for a lot of people, especially in the beginning, is proportional to how often they see deer. And if you got somebody who's new to hunting and is really putting their time and their money and spending time away from their families to do it or to put food on the table, more importantly, uh, no one should overlook our ability to, to, to level set everyone's experience in the woods and 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 make that attainable for somebody and what we're aiming to do with these apps is beyond just giving that answer is to tell them the why you know because machine learning for people can feel kind of black boxish like you're just like putting in a variable and then you're getting an answer and you're not quite sure why you're getting that answer but you got someone like me just telling you to trust you to trust me um we are looking at ways well you know, a few ways that we're doing it is we're going to start hyperlinking studies and YouTube videos of explanations to our recommendations and the widgets that we have in our common operating picture so that we're not just throwing answers at people. We're getting them to understand because if we can get, you know, my goal for people with this app is, I'm sorry if I'm not answering the question precisely, but, or your statement, but, um, is to help confirm their their presuppositions about how they should hunt a property or when they have those presuppositions, they might be getting stuck in a rut like we all do because they, they know a buck's moving through an area or a doe that they want to harvest is moving through an area. We can give them a separate way to look at the problem and maybe consider, make some considerations that they wouldn't have otherwise made. So that's kind of like, you know, level, you know, level setting it and making everyone more equal, which I think is a good thing especially because deer, num- deer hunters numbers are lowering. You know what I mean? There's, there's not as many people that I think we peaked in like 2012 or 2013. 
but not as many people are hunting now as we're hunting then, or numbers are going down in places. So this is, a, again, one of those ways to make sure we're getting max participation in this and also that people remain interested and keep wanting to do it so that this thing, we're, we need to be stewards for this to make sure it goes into the future. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and wrapping it in technology is a good way of doing that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you as far as like getting um, uh, more hunters or hunter retention and, and the, you know, not seeing deer, um, you know, is definitely uh, discouraging as well as running into other hunters and, you know, uh, all of uh, those sorts of things. Um, I guess, where do you see the future of hunting? Because I for like i said for uh, in the opening of this for myself like like going on your website and trying to like wrap my head around this it was like what in the world and and yeah. now um it, i guess you would have a better idea of uh i guess your competitors at this point i mean is this um are, are you guys the only ones that are are doing this or is this something that's that's coming regardless if it's you or or, or, or someone else it's cert- i mean it's certainly coming using machine learning and using uh you know automating the our deer's reasoning process in, in the way that we do it the highly statistical and neural network way is the way to do it you know no one is building tesla is not building using regression models or statistical analysis to drive a car. You know what I'm saying? They are using machine learning, which is replicating the way that we do object detection, object recognition, and object avoidance when when these cars are driving down the highway. You can't do it with statistical method. And just in that, you're trying to show a machine how a car should safely uh, navigate a roadway. We are showing a machine the way that a deer under general circumstances will navigate the deer woods. So I think this is certainly the future. And if we weren't to do it, someone else would do it. And, uh, and, and as far as the future of hunting is concerned, I think this is the way everyone will everywhere, the way everyone will go. And it's going to be who's got the access to the data, who can clean the data the best and, and do the best prediction. And that really leverages on who's using the right models and who's got the most data. So, you know, the other guys who are doing prediction movement right now or prediction forecasts are using like esoteric or they're using one off studies where someone might have studied a deer herd with some GPS callers for two or three weeks. And then they notice, you know, or or even a year. And here are this. Here's how they work. Here's how these deer moved in this area. But what they're not doing is they're not doing two million points from Texas, three and a half million points from southern Alabama. 1.6 1.6 million points from Maryland, two and a half million points from North Dakota, three and a half million points from Saskatchewan and Alberta. You And the only way to do that right now is to get the amount of compute that's available, available in a machine uh, learning or in a, in a neural network, tag that data that's meaningful, and then test it using future data. That's the only way to do this on mass. There isn't another way right now that you know, would do it. So, and that's kind of where we hang our hat on and is that we are using truth data. We have tons of data and uh, it, the data can't lie. When, when you've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of deer 
generating millions and millions of points, the predictions that the models make have to be that way because if they weren't, they wouldn't be accurate, then we wouldn't use the model. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. It's it's just a matter of, like I said, I, I just wanted to know, like, the obviously there's going to be some haters, some detractors and some people that say, you know, blah, blah, blah. This isn't ethical. This isn't, you know, how can they do that? But I mean, I would guarantee you that my phone is sitting right here. I'm talking, we're talking about this and I'll pull up Facebook and then there'll be an ad for a base map or something that we talked about on here. There'll be uh, places to visit in Maryland. I mean, so people are getting our information one way or the other. Um, and so the, the deer hunting thing about that isn't, isn't so far fetched. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of what I said before, if using a machine learning algorithm to do prediction on when and where deer will be moving is unethical. So is th- then so is asking Dan info where deer are going to be made because 95% of the time they're going to be making the same predictions. So if asking someone who really knows their stuff is unethical, then so is asking a machine, then yes. You know what I'm saying? Because the machine is going to get it wrong just as much as somebody who's been spending 50 years in the field because deer are animals and they don't all do the things lock stock. You know, they're not, they're not, you know, all the same. So, and, and that's why, you know, I welcome haters. Haters are a good thing. And, and, and people that don't like your tech, or maybe you want to see your tech uh, presented or, or done in a, in a different way are our greatest points of learning. We can learn a lot from those people as long as they're honest about what their problems or their, or, 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 you know, what they have against what we're doing. We can try to tether it and, and to help those people out to see what we're doing. But like I said before, if this is unethical, then so is asking somebody who really knows a lot about deer hunting because <laughs> that's really what this is. It, it's an automated person who knows a lot about deer hunting. And, and so throughout this conversation, this kind of like um, came to my mind and, and we can transition it into, like you said, this is now the when, and then the next phase is going to be, um, you know, the why. Um, if you can get into that process of why you don't have the why right now you only yeah. have the win but what i'm saying is like as this conversation like progressed and we are talking about like you know is it fair or is it um you know are, are you going to have all the people set up on the same thing do you think in the future that you'll have the be the ability and i guess it just stems from everything being uh of monetary value or equal playing field or whatever but be able to break the app down into tiers to say, this is for X amount, we'll show you doe movement, then year and a half old bucks, then two year olds, three year olds, and so forth. I mean, do you have that data uh, right now? I mean, yeah, so we generally know how does select bedding areas. Um, and we can juxtapose that from how a buck would select bedding and then young bucks versus older bucks. And, um, boy, sometimes when you see where, especially a very mature, like we're talking five and a half, seven year, seven and a half year old buck is betting, you just can't get to him. It's just one of those things where he is, I, I think I said it, I don't think we were talking offline just on a phone call, but 
I've seen the data where a buck lives and dies on the side of a hill mm-hmm. and no one can get to him There's, because he's because he's what they'll do is they'll bet on these tiny bowls that are on a ridge somewhere where they are getting thermal and overhead scent and then crosswind they're getting it because of the way that the bowl funnels the, the the thermals from the side you can't get on that deer and he might do one or two excursions a year where you need to be exactly where he is the one time that he might walk there a year but i've seen it where a buck is he does his dispersion he, he might be two and a half years old when he settles to this area and he dies at eight and no one ever saw him he he just did not go to where the corn feeders were he he did not he spent his time where he knew he had some he knew he had some acorns on the side of his hill and he went without during the rut and lost 35 percent of his body mass just cruising that one bridge and no, no one ever saw him uh so th- that's kind of like the uh to answer that second part to answer your first part about the why you know, one of the things that I, that is from a market perspective is difficult about machine learning is you, I, I make the comparison to where you can measure when maybe a person's, when, when a person might have a physical reaction to a temperature change or like when does person A start to feel cold versus person B? Like me, I'm always sweating. It doesn't matter. Even when it's 35 degrees out and I'm sitting on a tree, not moving, I'm still hot, I'm still sweating. It never ends for me. Uh, but then, you know, my oldest daughter is freezing when it's 85 degrees outside. And you can't ask that person, why are you cold? You know what I'm saying? The, the body produces that answer and, and tells you to seek heat or to seek comfort. And there's nothing you can do about that other than trying to condition yourself and getting used to things but you're not in charge of that part of the brain that's making those decisions. It's automated the same way that if you were to ask somebody, why does your heart beat that fast? Well, I know it beats faster because I have to oxygenate more blood because I'm running. And, and after I run out of that ability to really oxygenate blood at around 20 minutes, I start burning sugar that is programmed into the head. And it's a part of the brain that regulates that, but there's no question that you can ask of the human brain to produce that result. It's the same thing with machine learning. It learns that things do these things this way, and then it makes the prediction based on that. But what we can do and what we are trying to do right now is we're trying to figure out new and interesting ways to pull the, the machine learning system to try to understand, all right, when we tweak dew point just this much, what different, how does it produce differently? Or when we tweak temperature just this much, how does it produce differently? Or how does it change how this buck might do it? And then, you know, we, we're going to have to do this for probably the next year or so. But we're going to have to keep tweaking little bits and little bits just to see how we're affecting the reasoning process of this machine. And then once we do that, we start understanding these things, we can start engaging with things in machine learning called adversarial neural networks, where we can game a neural network against itself and tweak little parts of it and then allow it to tweak itself and then get a good understanding of why it's making these decisions. But it's just such a long process to do that, that right now we're just trying to get the answer out. And we may attach some like YouTube videos saying, you know, generally the why, and we might attach some studies that support those things. 
But until we really can get deep into this and probably hire, you know, a couple of more guys just to work on that, answering the why can get difficult. And you were saying that, like, this machine learning takes millions, if not billions of data points. And the more that you have, the more the machine can figure out uh, through that. You said, like, terabytes on terabytes on terabytes yeah yeah millions of data points and depending on what you're doing billions of data points um you know you just have to think you know every time a deer registers a new gps hit on a collar we bounce that off of like 12 or 15, 12 to 15 pieces of data depending on how much data we have for that area so we have that network has to learn 12 to 15 different variables assigned to that one piece of movement and then that deer might have that collar on for seven years and there might be 400,000 pieces of movement lashed up against 10 to 15 data points per movement piece. So, like I said, it's impossible to do a statistical analysis of that. It just has to be done in the void, in, in the vacuum. And I hate using the word black box. It's kind of the way you have to describe it. But there is method to the madness. And we know that because testing would fail if it wasn't, as we ingested new data, we wouldn't be able to make meaningful and accurate predictions if it wasn't correct. And that's the way we measure ourselves, if that makes sense. And so in the future, how are you, uh, like going forward, how are you validating these processes? I mean, because you've got, you know, outside of putting data against data, right? You know, mm -hmm. for for the hunter, and you've got, you know, I don't know, uh, I'd imagine that probably 45 states are whitetail states. I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, who who wouldn't be hunting. But how are you validating that for a guy in, you know, Oklahoma, a guy in Maine, it's all big woods, a guy in Florida, a guy in, because I know you talked yeah. about there was different. Um, you know, the Southeast, the deer move way different than they do in the yeah. know, Midwest. Yeah. So, I mean, the first way we validate it is that thing I've talked about before, which is, you know, we'll get into contact with a new deer, a new deer biologist or a new study will be conducted by deer biologists that we work with. And we will test our data and see how accurate we're testing for those deer that we've never seen before. That's the first way. And then the second way is as people start using this, we're going to depend on those user stories. You know, hey, I've been hunting this property my whole life, or I've been hunting this piece of public land my whole life. I've never gotten on good deer here, or I've never seen deer here in some cases. And, you know, the first time I fired this thing up, uh, it was putting me on deer. You know, I mean, that's really the way that we measure ourselves or, valid or we're going to validate ourselves because um, scientifically, sure, that's the prudent way and the honest way to do it. But if this doesn't translate to people seeing deer or having their opportunity at deer, it's not going to matter. And where do other, I mean, so I, I, I know we talked about this uh, previously um, on the, the vitals and um, you guys can check out the Spartan Forge YouTube because that's up there um, and you can go through it. He's got everything up on the screen and kind of, kind of goes through a little bit of it and we dive into this a little bit, but so where does hunting pressure come into that? And and what I'm thinking about specifically is like, so let's say that I get your, your app and this would be a, a, 
a perfect example is like I said, we've got 240 acres in the UP. Mm-hmm. Your machine would be able to say, these are the spots and we could look and we could cross reference where deer had been taken in the past and where our stands are set up currently. I could give it to my brother. So I've got two brothers. Uh, one is a very um, passionate hunter and he goes out to uh, South Dakota every year and hunts and he hunted North Dakota last year. And I mean, he's, he's killed some good deer, but he is more in line with like the way that I hunt, and, you know, we do here on the podcast. I have another brother who goes up to our property solely to be not working. Yeah. So sure. I could give him the app and say, this is where it says you need to be. And that would be a perfect example, a perfect uh, trial by fire. But if we've got five, six other guys on the property, you know, that yep. might skew the data. Yeah, absolutely. It will, it will skew the data because if I, if you, for instance, you know, at some point we'll get to a feature where we'll have enough deer where the app will be able to tell you, here's where we see mature bucks betting on this property. That we don't have that amount of data yet. You know, there's only so many times that you can have a tag five and a half or six and a half year old deer. We've got a bunch, but we don't have enough to train a network. And when we do, we'll be able to say, here's where a six and a half year old deer would, would bet on this property. If you hit that property every day, that buck's never going to be there. So to kind of answer your question, for the really hard to hunt places, it's twofold. A, it's going to be being able to point out the really hard to get to spots where only a mature buck would bed. But then B, it's going to require a catalog of data where you're feeding the app where you have been sitting on that property up to this point and where there hasn't been any human intrusion. So that, that that's going to be where that catalog, uh, that historical um, uh, uh, historical diary of data will have to sit on the app and say, okay, you've been lighting up this part of the property. We suggest that you move over here and let this cool off. And again, that'll be something we'll be able to back up with scientific studies that we have found saying, you know, how often you should hunt in certain areas and when you should leave certain areas alone. So I guess that's kind of like a two pronged way of answering your question. Yeah. Can you... uh, but one, of it, one of it will involve tagging of where you are going so that the machine can say, OK, based on that, here's here's how I would change what you're doing. Yeah. Can you expound on that a little bit? I, I remember you saying that you had some studies or that you've got some tag deer that were uh, there were no deer, uh, no hunters in the area or whatever. And then you put a hunter in there and then it, it you track the deer movement uh, based on yep. intrusion. Yeah. So this was a study and I'm going to might get the amount of days wrong, but um, I, we, I can Google or I can send you it. And maybe you can post the study in the comments, but it was a study from Auburn where they had put deer in the, or they put hunters in the field and watched how mature bucks were reacting to how the hunters were entering and hunting the area and coming out. And I want to say that it was, I, I could get this wrong, but I want to say it was at least five to six days before they had patterned back to that area in the night once the hunter had been through it. And then it was like 10 days and I could get this wrong. Like I said, we'll post it and hunters can read it for themselves before they had patterned, like of, of, of the woods being left alone before they had patterned back to that during the day. If they were moving it there during the day before the hunter started going there. 
Yeah. So, so about 10 days. And so, and so that's huge information for guys. I mean, cause generally speaking, like I don't know very many people that take 10 days for a, a hunt, you know, everything is like, you know, a seven day period, nine day period, you know, weekend to weekend type thing. So if you go into an area and, and booger it up in the wrong time frame, yeah, it's like, day. It, it, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it can be really discouraging, right? And that's why we have the wind feature because it's that perfect, it's that, it's that union of the when and the where, because the where depends on the when and the when depends on the day. So uh, you can have the best bowl on the side of a ridge where you think a buck or a bench on the side of a ridge where you know a buck's bedding. But if the wind is not right and the time of day is not right, it's not going to matter. He, he either won't be there or he saw you coming before you ever got out of your vehicle because he's watching the, you know, the trail up that you might use to get into that area. So the hunt was over before it started because you didn't go on the right day or the right wind or the right time. And he was able to wind you or see you as you were making your way up there. Um, yeah. And those studies are super interesting. And like I said, I'll send that to you afterwards. I, I want to make sure I get the date, the days, amount of days right on that. But that is to say, you also, I think everyone has heard the story of, you know, we have this deer camp that's got, you know, a thousand acres and we run 10 to 15 stands on it. And everyone was going to their favorite stand. And then there was a kid who didn't have a stand. So we just told him, hey, you know, go over here. And we sent him someplace that no one ever sees anyone. Then he kills a 150 inch buck on that property, you know, because he was going a place, that buck was bedding in a place where he knew none of the other hunters were going. And that kind of speaks to that first point about um, the areas that they select based on when humans have been in there or how often humans go into it. And I guess as like a, a broad stroke overview, like who does this benefit the most or um, where do you see this being implemented most effectively? The public land hunter, without a, without a doubt. I'm a public land hunter. It's my passion to, to, you know, I see it as the highest challenge and it kind of sounds kind of weird, but you might know what I'm talking about. It's the closest thing I can get to recreating the, the, the energy and the sense of fulfillment that I got conducting combat operations. Uh, you know, getting on a piece of public land and like, uh, one of the 2017 bucks I killed was 150 inch public land buck. Um, and I, it was a scrape. He was working in front of me. You know, it, it felt like a half hour when I saw him working the first scrape and I was waiting for him to get to the one that was right in front of me. And then you put that arrow in the boiler room and it's as if your entire body is full of acid when you're doing it. You know, it's very similar uh, feeling to uh, doing work for the military overseas. And uh, undoubtedly, private landholders will benefit from this, especially if they listen, because by virtue of not going on the land every day, because not every day is going to be a high prediction. So just by virtue of letting the land cool off for the private land hunter, it will help. But without a doubt, this is built for the public land hunter. This is a public land hunters app. Okay. Yeah. And, and that was my... Um my thoughts exactly just in the fact of like so let's say you've been going to a a spot you know and you've 
you thought you had it figured out and there's another guy there or, you know, it's the wind is wrong or anything like that. And you're like, oh, I want to check out this spot. It would seem like you could just pull up this app and say, well, there's a public land place over here. I put that in, I look at it and it says, okay, this is where I need to be because of the wind. You can go in there, use your own, you know, woodsmanship or whatever. You can go in there and say, okay, well, that's where it says I need to be. This looks about right. Pick a tree and get up it. And you're already that far ahead. It's, it's, it's not necessarily, and that's what I was getting at with that, like cheat sheet comment, because like I was saying, yeah. like it sounds like you've got it figured out without the app. Like you're doing just fine without doing all this stuff. But I think with all of this study and everything that you've been putting in, uh, you know, your heart and soul into this, you've just learned it on your, you and the machine are <laughs> doing it and you're just trying to pass it yeah. along to, to the rest yeah. of us. And the other thing I think it does is like when you've got a 12,000 acre public hunting property, it's going to be able to cut down 90% of that area that you might have had to spend on your foot scouting or sitting there like I used to do and tacking on a map with a pen. Like, all right, I'm going to check out this ridge. I'm going to check out this ridge. All right, these fingers here, there's an intersecting point here. I want to check this out. You know, all of those things that you have to do, it can, you know, zero all that in and say just on this piece of public land focus on these areas for your scouting or your hunting you know so kind of just uh distilling a lot of that information and just leaving the hunter to choose from the most uh pragmatic spots to go and either scout or hunt like that right there that's the way i do it now and that's some of what i did today but I just dropped a whole bunch of pins and then circled around and said, I need to do that. And what's funny about that is, you know, you use the analogy of like Dan Infault, but you know, Dan Infault and I just watched uh, one of the latest YouTube videos from Garrett Prowl, but he said the same thing is like, you take this and you just outline the things that you're not going to go. Like I'm not going to check out that you, you know, you're going to look at this 4,000 acre piece of property in one afternoon and you're only checking the areas that you think will be good and it would take you weeks or months to go through all the rest of that and i think that that's that's huge i i mean i'm i'm trying to be as uh objective as possible because like i said like when i looked at this i was like i was like oh there's there's no way this is just a weird you know uh, thing out there and then you know as you explain it and like uh, thinking about all that to say you have 30 years of weather data I mean as far as your bandwidth is concerned you know I can go buy a farmer's almanac that'll tell me I mean if you got your old Garmin GPS it'll tell you whether it's a good day to hunt or not it'll be like you know there'll yeah. be a smiley face or a sad face or like a so-so it tells you good fishing days and bad fishing days and it's you know somewhat based on the same thing but it's very rudimentary yep yep absolutely so. and it's just you know and another way to say it quite simply is just it's just another tool in the kit bag it's, it's no different from anything else. And, you know, you know, when you talk about increasing odds on land, um, 
I would say it increases a person's odds no more than putting a long range rifle in someone's hand. I mean, if you just tell somebody, hey, here's a long range rifle and you go and hunt this ridge over here, uh, you know, that person's going to have some pretty good success. You know, this isn't an exact science. There's guesswork involved here because you have to pick a spot. We're going to be presented with many spots. You're going to have to pick one um, and go hunt that spot for that day. And you're still rolling the dice. No, no different than anything else. Um, we're just trying to help people, especially, you know, you might have 14 days of vacation a year or seven days or three days, or you might only be able to hunt weekends. Um, you don't want to waste it, you know, hunting the wrong area or the, at the wrong time or the wrong place. And you don't have the time to go out and scout and be on the, you know, like you or I might have where we might spend a Saturday or a Sunday just trekking miles and miles and miles. Some guys don't have that. And also, hey, you know, they want to spend time with their families and their time off as well. And they don't want to be trekking the mountains either. So, like I said, it's kind of like a great equalizer that makes sure that everyone gets a shot. And I think if we continue to do this and we move with the pace of technology, we will keep people interested. And, and, and really, that's the overall goal. And people might say, well, if people aren't interested, I don't want them hunting. It's like, well, maybe A, maybe they might not know they're interested. And B, the more people are interested, the more access we'll have to public lands. So we should be getting people interested and finding new avenues to keeping people invested in this in their pursuit of, of whether it's a doe or a, or, a, or a cow or a bull or a whitetail. And so I know you've got some other things like that are coming down the pike and it kind of goes a- along with this. But um, the the obvious follow up question, at least to me, and I mean, we've talked about this before is if all 11 million hunters out there, whitetail hunters, download your app, are they going to run into each other at the same place? I don't know because I'll be in the Bahamas. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, no, they, they will not run into it. When we, when we do integrate, whether we integrate with a mapping company, which there's possibilities on the horizon, or we develop our own mapping um, portion, uh, we will make sure that we de-conflict those and then also that we user strip that data and we give people a general area to focus on and we don't have hunters overlapping. So, you know, we will field a free version of this that will give people some of what is available from a prediction standpoint, but it will also work to make sure that people are not hunting over each other or you're not going into an area that was just hunted that morning where you don't know that it's been blown up with scent and that there's no one there. Uh, so yeah, we will be doing those things as well uh, when we feel the wear feature. So that, that to me, and I, I haven't um, had this conversation with you. I've had it with, uh, with Walter and like I, I put you in touch with yep. Walter. Uh, but the, the scariest part for me about the whole thing is kind of just that, right? So it, it seems like you would be able to tweak the app or the app, the machine would be able to learn where people were that day on that thing. But like what I told Walt is I said, could you imagine being able to hack into the hunting publics or Dan Infaults or Andy Mays Onyx and get those points? I mean, right. and, and I think that that, 
is one of those it doesn't end up being like on the hunting ethics side of it, but it ends up being like on the overall ethical side of it is like, yeah, I mean, I guess the first point of order on that is it's illegal. <laughs> so if someone was doing that for deer points, it's like, Oh man, I, I mean, we must be really committed. B it's difficult to do that type of work hacking. Uh, I know from experience and C allegedly, right. <laughs> oh no, no! I mean, as being a protector of networks, okay. not as right. a salter of networks. I'm sorry. I should clarify my terms here. As a guy who wants to protect critical information, okay, um, uh, I can speak to that, attest to that. But also, you know, there's a few ways that we can crack this nut. One is a hunter can give can give away how much does he want to say he's on one half of this public land. Does he want to say he's in one quarter of this area or a square mile of this area on this public land? Or does he not want to report his stuff at all? And if he doesn't want to do that, that's his or her um, prerogative because they can just as easily turn the GPS off on their phone. So we will give people that choice. But I can say from our perspective that we go, we will go through a lot of painstaking efforts to protect everyone's honey holes. Um, and it'll be up to them how, what kind of resolution they want to give away on where they're hunting. It'll just be, Hey, you know, I want to know when someone's 800 yards as the crow flies away from my position. And then they can choose whether or not they want to keep walking in there and molest my hunt or not. But it'll be, it'll be, it'll be no different from hunters right now when they're walking up to a public land station where they might say, Hey, they've sectored it off and said, Hey, I'm hunting here today in one C I'm hunting here today in one B or whatever. Um, it'll be a similar interaction to that. So, I mean, if somebody's got a honey hole and they don't want to give it up and they are so afraid of, you know, somebody hacking an app that they don't want that. Um, sure. If you're pulling some big bucks out of there, I might understand that frame of mind and uh, they don't have to uh, bring that in there, but then they can't be upset on the flip side of the coin when, you know, a hiker is coming through there who's not hunting, but they might be using an app that shares data with ours and they walk right through your setup and blow your hunt. So it, it's a double-edged sword, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it just it, to me, it goes like it, it's twofold, right? Because everybody is a conspiracy theorist, and we've all seen all the Jason Bourne movies and Jack Reacher and everything. And you obviously have friends at the NSA, so you could do whatever you <laughs> <I'm about that. laughs> whatever whatever you want to do. But the the other side of that is the you know we 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 talk about this. 80 year old farmer or the Amish um, that we've got around here that, you know, they're not giving away their information. They're not on their phone. They're not, you know, doing any of that stuff. So you're, it can only be as good as the data points, right? So you can't say that yep. there wasn't anybody in there, but you can just, all right. you can speak to is the, the trends and whatnot. So there's, there's, there's two very different things two different sides of it. You've got the people that are completely offline and then, you know, you've got your friends that can like just send a drone strike to my house right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, it it certainly is that, but I think when we get the right amount of people using this app or one like it or the hunt, you know, it should, it's a prudent step for all of the mapping apps to say, look, we're going to create a user stripped centralized data repository so that people, People aren't stepping on each other when they're hunting. We're not going to give away spots, um, but it, it might be a good idea that these apps um, communicate cross-platform so that we can help hunters out from first from uh, 
not messing up each other's hunts, but also from not stacking people in the same area on a piece of public land and also a safety perspective. You know, so there's 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 a lot of good reasons to be sharing this data when we're in the field. Um, and, I, you know, uh, I mentioned safety last, but I should have probably said it first. Um, and again, your phone's already reporting this data. I mean, we could go, we could get into this, but I mean, if you think Google isn't, isn't storing, uh, this stuff in a cache somewhere as you're running around or storing your searches so that can give you the best advertising or Facebook isn't doing the same thing. They're all doing it. It's already being done. If you've got a smartphone and you consent to sharing your GPS location, which 95% of people do, 99% of people do, it's already happening. So the question becomes, do we want to be judicious about how we share this information and use it for a, a noble purpose like safety and improving the hunting experience uh, or not? And, and that's on as kind of like a personal question everyone needs to answer. So is yours turned on? My GPS is turned on, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. That, uh, that makes me feel better. There was where it wasn't, but these days it's always turned on. <laughs> All right. So, so you spend all this time, uh, putting all this information and in, in all this time and effort into, uh, the hunting, uh, side of it and where these deer are and everything. And like, so John's not here, his normal question, like his five words from the podcast would be, so what bow setup are you shooting? Like, so what, what's your bow arrows, uh, broadheads? So I shoot that. two bows. I, I shoot a traditional, um, uh, recurve that was made for me by a friend who's from uh, Montana and then I shoot a PSE stinger and uh, I shoot the carbon I believe that I shoot carbon express and I'm also trying to remember the other one that I shoot it's the black one the name's escaping me because you're putting me on the mo on the on the on the this is a bull hunting podcast I mean, with, like this, with it's the black one with the steel on it the FMJs? Like the FMJs. The FMJs, yeah. Yeah. And then Muzzy. Okay. So I, I just have always stuck with the fixed blades. I don't know why, but I just for me being, you know, an engineer in the military, I've always and just pragmatically, anytime you more in, introduce more moving parts, you're you're the first law of thermodynamics get a vote and then more things tend towards disorder. So for me, it's like I've never had a problem with a Muzzy MX3, so I'm just going to always shoot it. So then why are you shooting FMJs? What do you mean? Well, so it's carbon-wrapped metal. They're aluminum. They can bend. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know what? I haven't thought it through that much, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I should think about it more. I mean, I just like the FMJs because they're hard and they're fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always get great pass-through on them. But um, Or it seems that way. Maybe it's just something I've tricked myself into. But, uh, yeah, I guess you, you've just exposed a flaw in my reasoning. Well, I mean, so wait, what kind of boat, what kind of arrow should I be shooting if, that, if this is the case? Is there something that's, there's less moving parts in? Well, I mean, so like when you get down to the like nuts and bolts of it, if you were to ask like, so I'm going to answer for John. So John has shot FMJs and he actually, uh, <laughs> our last post, which, uh, took, took off because i made a meme out of it and uh it was a, a very uh, people said it was photoshopped uh john was bare shaft tuning uh in fmj he doesn't shoot them he just had some laying around from when he did um 
shot one through the paper, uh, through his garage door, and through the hood of his Jeep. And it hit the hood latch, exploded, and went straight down and just nicked the fins on the air conditioning cooler there. That is awesome. It's a 2018... uh, JL with aluminum hood and the hood is like $1,100. So um, his wife wasn't happy basically from the safety aspect of it. Cause that could have been one of the kids out there or something like that. Sure, uh, sure. And all of that, but the pride also kicked in. Um, wow. But, but he shoots uh, the Eastern axis, uh, the five millimeter. And um, that's what he leans towards. Um, I've been shooting black Eagles. I'm building a set of, uh, black Eagle Spartans right now for our elk hunt and they're, uh, I'll use them whitetail hunting. But, uh, if you want to get like way down the, the rabbit hole of like carbon fiber, uh, the best, um, you know, almost like a, I believe that they are proprietary. Um, the day six arrows are just amazing. Um, day six. And I've got a set of those that I'm building for whitetail um, as well. But um, the carbon's almost twice as thick as the the normal. They're uh, kind of like a micro diameter. They shoot an outsert system. Um, they're pretty badass. Um, how, and how much are those weighing in at? Uh, I th- I want to say that they're like about nine grains an inch, depending on what shaft you're shooting. Um, Sturdy. The uh, Spartans that I'm shooting right now are like, I believe they're 10 or 11, because uh, I'm shooting the 250s. I'm putting 250 grains up front, so it I had to balance the spine out for the that. So, but John, yeah. John, like I said, he's the he. So the the way that this podcast works is I'm just the mouth and the the question answer and the uh, personality or whatever, and John's the genius so when you were talking about um the adrenos and and whatever uh yeah like john has an electrical background and he works on but he works on cranes too so he works on controllers and 440 three phase and all the stuff so he's when you said that i was like where is he at like come on it'd be be (laughs) perfect but but yeah, so when you know when you're talking about like less things to fail, I mean, you shoot that full metal jacket into the dirt one time, and then you just put it back in your quiver. Um, there's a good chance, depending on like what you're shooting, that it's it's bent. I mean, there's something there. Yeah. yeah, you know, I'll definitely consider that because trying to I like I like, no different from the what we're doing with the machine learning. I'm trying to isolate as, and account for as many variables as possible to keep things as simple as possible. Um, you know, you, you talk to somebody who's a pro in anything, whether it's basketball, football, archery, it doesn't matter. And it's like, it's like fundamentals and repeatability are like the two things. It's like focus on the fundamentals and make things repeatable. Don't make them difficult as, you know, err as much on the side of order as far away from chaos as you can be. And then find a way to repeat that. And that's like the very simplistic way to describe it. I try to as much as everything I do. So no in, matter what I'm doing, in comes the traditional bow. Uh, what's that setup? I, I'm John gives me so much crap because I'm I, again I tout myself as the world's worst bow hunter. It's easier um, just for the simple fact of like 
everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. I just get lucky here and there. Um, and John's like, you can't switch to traditional until you do this or this or this or, or whatever. Um, just because he's like, you're just a fuck up. Like you can, like you <laughs> cannot do that just yet. So I'm, I'm, I would love to kill a deer, uh, with a traditional equipment. So what's your traditional setup? Yeah. So it's a handmade bow, um, a recurve, a friend of, this is another long story for another podcast probably. But I, ba- I grew up basically doing these things called, it's primitive camping. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but it's called like a rendezvous. Oh, yeah. You dress up in all the freaking. Yeah, like buckskinning and all yep. of that oh, yeah. stuff. So yep, yep. I grew up doing that stuff. And a friend of mine was a bullier and uh, he had made me a recurve. I guess the best, it, it pulls about 50 pounds. And it's very comparable to like one of like an old like Fred Bear. Um, nothing fancy to it whatsoever. Um and I've had that one for about six years and I've only killed maybe four or five deer with it. I've killed four deer with it and I don't take it on public land. Like when I'm hunting public land, I got that, the bow I have, I use on public land because I want to be dialed in and I just don't trust myself beyond 20 yards with that traditional bow. So I'm mostly using, I would say, 75% of the time I'm using that, that compound. And what's your arrow setup and broadhead setup with the traditional? I shoot the same ones. Okay. Yep. Same ones. So are you like, shooting feathers off of your, uh, what's that? Are, are you oh, shooting the, feathers? The fletch, yeah, yeah. The fletchlings. Yes. They're feathers. Yes. Yeah. 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 I should have said that. Those are feathers, but, okay. uh, I just take those like the bass pro and have them and have them do them up. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so that I mean that's where I'm at. So I've got a couple different uh like cheap recurves. I'm getting a good quality um recurve with longbow limbs and the arrows are going to be the next thing and I just I personally just love that instinctual shooting. And uh the guy that we went elk hunting, uh, we stayed at his cabin out in Idaho 2 years ago, but he's only traditional um just from that simplicity fact like where he's been out in the back country and broke a limb or uh, cut a string yeah, or something true. like that. And then you're, you're stuck, you know? So, um, that that's... I'm really, uh, saying some mutually exclusive statements. Cause you would think based on my minimizing amount of things that could go wrong, I would be going that way, but mm-hmm. I'm not because I just don't trust myself beyond like 25 yards, like on a booner buck or something like that to just like, Oh man, if I just had my, you know, if I missed, I always say to myself, I just had my, my compound i would have made that shot yeah but, but if you but the same thing goes for for archery hunting is that it would if i just had my bow that i mean for me like as soon as i got done with boot camp i basically quit <laughs> rifle hunting because it's like when you're shooting 500 meters offhand you know or you know from the prone open sights you know there was no yep. optics or any of that yep. it's like any deer that I see with a rifle, like I can kill it. Like I don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And so that same thing happens like every deer that I see. And so if, I mean, you could, it's one of the things that we go back and forth with a podcast. You know, we pigeonholed ourselves being like the bow hunter chronicles. John's a big fisherman. And, you know, we do this and like kind of where we draw the line is crossbows. We want, we want people to be out hunting and we want them to, 
be out there, but like, it's always going to be a pissing contest. Like unless you did a self bow, you know, made your own arrows, chewed the sinew and made your string. Like somebody's going to be like, well, you could have done it this way or you could have did it this way. Oh, you right. could have did it this way. Yeah, and so it ultimately ends up being like wherever you're comfortable. And that that's the hard part is saying, I'm, I mean, I'm the same way, but like what you're saying is you're like, you're the problem. Like I'm the, pro- like I can't at 25 yards, like I can't not, I don't have the self-control to, <laughs> you know, and uh, no, I, I totally feel it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's just, I guess it's what I'm comfortable with, but I got the same feeling with you do about the rifle. Like after being in the military for so long, like shooting a rifle at that point almost feels like cheating. But then of course I say that and I would go somewhere and I don't see any deer. So maybe I just, uh, just keep my mouth shut and, uh, and take what I can get. <laughs> right. So, uh, for, for everybody following along, you said September 1st. I mean, so we're, yep. this is going to come out and this one will come out in like a couple of days. So, um, yep. you know, where can they pick that up? Where's it going to be available? Where can they follow along with everything that's doing in the updates? And yeah, so they can go to www.spartanforge, S P A R T A N F O R G E dot A I. And on there are, well, you'll be able to access the common operating picture on a desktop. And we're looking, it will be accessible from your phone as well. We're not doing an app yet. We'll probably do an app with the wear feature, but for the wind feature, it's just going to be accessible through your phone or through a, uh, through a computer. And uh, our all of our Instagram, Facebook, and all of that stuff is, is available on there as well. And so real quick, just since you're, saying that and it's an app and all the things that I have issue with is, is there going to be anything that's available to be like downloaded or like you said that there's going to be like a 14 day window. Cause like where I hunt, there is no cell phone service. So, I mean, that would be something to, to consider if it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even with an app, you won't be able to access it without, you know, because it's using a neural network, you have to hit that neural network to make the prediction. But we will make it available so the results would be searchable and storable on your phone. So when you do go hunting, you'll be able to look these things up before you go out there and put those down. And then, unfortunately, if you're going to be out there for more than a week or two, you'd probably have to go back and get cell service for the time being. But maybe that's something we can work on in the future. Maybe you can use or input your own weather or something, but that might be an interesting feature that we could look into. Okay. Um, yeah. Just, just something yeah. that I thought of because that's a you know, I have to download the maps to find my way back home, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that there's too much compute to try to store a local instance of the neural network on your phone, if that makes sense. Yeah. It so has if, to go and touch a ton of machinery in order to make those predictions. So if I was at home and I said, this is where I'm going to hunt, this is where I need to be, I can, I, I guess I could screenshot it. But I, anyways, I could download that and say... Okay, this is where we're going to be. And we'll make it so it's storable offline. Yep. Awesome. Well, I I do appreciate your time and, you know, you coming on here. And like I said, like the in-person being able to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, it makes it so much more clear than just kind of hearing it secondhand or trying to read about it. So um, I I think it's, it's extremely valuable. Yeah. And thank you for having me on here. And I hope we can do it again sometime after the launch. And uh, as people are getting through it and, uh, you know, user feedback, we're very dynamic. We make changes. You know, when we notice something's wrong, we make changes pretty quick. In fact, since the last podcast, 
um, working with some of our uh, guys that are, you know, using this stuff out in the field right now for scouting and stuff or making changes that I think is going to make the user experience even better. So uh, as we evolve, I think it'd be good to get back on here and let you guys know where we're going and where we're heading and, and how and how we're doing. And then also, you know, if you guys do call-ins or anything like that, get any user feedback, you know, it's great. Yeah, we can certainly do that. But yeah, I really appreciate it. Because that's all we got. Yeah, thanks again. Yep. Sit down. Sit down.